yesterday's conservative becomes the new radical, when empty establishment becomes the status quo, when counterculture is the culture, the only thing we have to counter is counterculture itself. Sorry to keep you waiting, complicated business. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. Stand up, Australians, and kick out this bunch of traitors. This is a bag of prawns. Whence the besetting temptation of all politics to concern itself with the immediate present at the expense of the future. Politics should be about solutions, positive answers for Australia's future. And what do I want for our country? I want all Australians climbing the ladder of opportunity. The Howard government has been taking the rungs out of the ladder. Well, I want to put them back in, especially through better health and education services. That's the opportunity we need for all our people. You know, when I was growing up in public housing, my mother always told me to study hard and work hard. Well, that's what the ladder of opportunity is all about. If you work hard, if we've got strong families and communities, and the government provides decent services for people, Anything is possible in this country. That's the Australia I believe in. No matter where you come from, you should have the same chance to succeed in life. An Australia where the hard workers are rewarded, where the system looks after the people, not just the powerful. Hello and welcome to Counter Counterculture. My name is Tim O'Hare and with me is Sam Schuller. Good morning, Tim. Today, we're chatting to one of my all-time heroes. For 10 years, Mark Latham was a dynamic force in Australian politics and looked like he had a real shot of ending Labor's electoral drought and defeating John Howard. Then, in a shocking turn of events, he gave it all away and became only to become one of Australia's most unique and thought-provoking political commentators. All this and more coming right up. Well, it's a pretty big day for counter-counterculture, wouldn't you say, mm-hmm. Sam? Yeah, so it's a real coup, this one, so to speak. A real coup? What mm. do you mean by that? Uh, you know, a coup is like uh, a um, a big get, you know? A, a real coup to get uh, Mr. Latham on the show. I'm obviously a big Latham fan. What do you think of old Lath Dog? Um, you know, I've never really followed him too much. Um, I guess he wasn't in politics when I... No, he'd already left when I got interested in politics. Um, but I don't mind him as a commentator. Um, I've never really watched too many of his programs. Uh, I only I just see him every now and then, you know, on um, Facebook or whatever with, you know, the controversies that he's every now and then involved in. And, you know, I like that kind of uh, uh, provocative type of um, people. I don't really know his politics all that well um but judging from recent things with the you know trump uh you know he's a vocal supporter of trump and he's a uh outspoken critic of what he calls cultural marxism and all that so you know i I can get on board with that all right well 
it will be a learning experience, hopefully, for all of us. Well, mm. uh, we'd better we'd better get on with it. We'd better give him a call. Yeah, let's give him a buzz. Hello. Uh, hello, is that Mark? Yes, it is. Hi, Mark. It's Tim O'Hare from Counter Counterculture. How are you going? Yeah, good, Tim. How are you? Yeah, great, mate. Um, thanks for coming on. Uh, this is my co-host, Sam. Yeah, hey, Mark. Hi, Sam. Hey. It, was it Sam, was it? Yeah, Sam. Yeah. Yep. yeah, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Good, oh, good stuff. Uh, yeah, as Tim said, thanks very much for, uh, for coming on the show. A pleasure. Well, are you ready to uh, get started? Yeah, yeah, just close the door here. Uh, there's a little bit of noise outside. All good. All good, yeah. All good. Um, yeah, I can remember just how big a moment it was when you uh, ran uh, for Prime Minister. Um, you know, being in a Labor family, just ha- the excitement. I remember my sister, who just turned 18, uh, a bit older than me, uh, coming home in tears. And we were like, what's up? And she said, you know, uh, he's lost. Uh, and it was quite devastating. I, I wish, though, I wish I could say there was that same uh, amount of devastation uh, when you got uh, fired from Sky News. Uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> I can't say that my whole family has stuck on board the Latham train. Uh, but I'm on board. Uh, so I suppose what I'd like to talk to you about would be uh, your time in the Labor Party. Uh, you joined the Labor Party quite young, as I recall. Uh, what would... I'd be curious to know, what would a teenage Mark Latham say about uh, the Labor Party uh, today? Well, in that circumstance, I, it was 1979. I was 18 years of age, uh, just having left high school, and I'd, I'd grown up in a public housing estate at <coughs> Green Valley in Western Sydney, and, you know, my political passion was urban inequity that... Mm. <clears throat> Why was it that an area like Green Valley, full of public housing, lacked certain facilities and amenities which other parts of Sydney had taken for granted? So for me, there were obvious issues of income inequality in Australian society, but also inequality of opportunity. So I wanted to do something out about that and, and, and join the Labor Party as a consequence. Uh, I'd grown up in a Labor family and uh, there was no doubt that at that time Labor was seen as a party very much interested in equality issues to do with socio-economic status and urban realities. But today, of course, Labor barely talks about any of those issues. It's been totally consumed with what we call identity politics, Mm. uh, subdividing the nation on the basis of race, gender, sexuality and religion. So a young Mark Latham looking at today's Labor Party would think that it was totally detached from the issues that I was interested in uh, going back to 1979. Um, It's part of the transformation, I think Labor's negative transformation, away from being a trade union-based party, a party interested in socio-economic issues, to one that's transfixed Mm. by a trendy left abstract, out-of-touch agenda about identity. Yeah, well... You said when you left the Labor Party, you said that you were leaving the party of Bill Short and Sam Dastyari. And both of those men are on Labor right. They're considered to be from the right of the party. So just where is the party going if men like that are considered to be on the right wing? Well, New South Wales right faction is a label, but it doesn't reflect ideology. Uh, I saw Dastyari last year. We were part of the Channel 7 election night coverage and had a drink in the city thereafter and 
I'd written a piece saying what's happened to people who call themselves factionally right-wing, they're embracing left-wing identity politics as much as the formal socialist left faction of the Labor Party. And I put this to Daftiara, I said, look, I've written this thing calling you guys uh, right-wing lefties inside the Labor Party. And I was sort of thinking, oh, this might be a you know, scarifying critique that knocks yeah. this guy off his barstool. Right-wing <laughs> lefties. He's, oh, we love that. We saw that. We love that. We love being known as um. right-wing lefties. <laughs> well, instead it was me falling off my barstool. We're shocked that these fools have embraced uh, the politics of the left. You know, we've, we've said recently with the federal budget that... Um, uh, Labor's won the ideological battle with Turnbull and Morrison surrendering to high taxing, high deficit, high debt, uh, mm. high spending type budgeting. Well, inside the Labor Party, the socialist left faction has won the ideological battle hands down because people like Dastiari and also Shorten have conceded defeat in standing up for the economic reform model of the Hawke-Keating era, of standing up for attention to equality of opportunity issues for standing up for attention to socio-economic issues and they've surrendered completely mm. to the identity left and it's an amazing capitulation yeah i'd have to i'd have to agree with you there and i think a similar thing happened in the u.s with hillary clinton supposedly of the right of the democratic party yeah. but there was no real uh inch of difference between her and Bernie Sanders on the identity politics issues. Um, we normally ask our guests how they've evolved politically, uh, but with you, it's kind of on the public record. I know that, Mark, you maintain that you haven't changed and it's the Labor Party that's changed, uh, but could you identify one issue where you have changed your view uh, since leaving politics? Well, I've changed my views. Well, I suppose as issues come onto the agenda, you take a, a stance, uh, one that I can think of as climate change, that when I was leaving the parliament in 2005, it was emerging as a mainstream issue. It was at its peak in the 2007 election. And I suppose I would have been of the view that there was an international climate science consensus pointing to significant mad-made climate change. I think upon reflection, as you judge the evidence since then, you'd say... Two things. One is that those 2007 predictions haven't quite eventuated. There is warming, but not on the scale we were, that, that, that was forecast 10 years ago. And the second thing is, you know, after the debacle of the Rudd attempted an emissions trading scheme, Gillard's promise of no carbon tax under a government she led, mm -hmm. Labor then bringing in a carbon tax, Abbott repealing it is carbon pricing the best way to go what do we say about the emissions trading scheme so i would have changed my views there to now say um, don't worry too much about targets and mechanisms australia should be a global energy superpower we should be growing uh, nuclear energy industry to the point where it's 60 percent of our energy supply and security 20 percent renewables 20 percent fossil fuel so all of that, of course, adds up to 80% non-carbon emission energy sources. So mm. I think you might be better off thinking of Australia as a place where we have lots of energy sources. We've seen the catastrophic experiment in South Australia for a majority renewables that's, oh, yeah. uh, that's failed hopelessly. So you can't think that way anymore. Car uh, carbon pricing and climate change is an issue where you need to judge the evidence, you need energy security, but you also need to have some concern, almost an insurance policy about climate change, but don't do it through carbon pricing or 
through um, uh, renewable energy targets, do it through the growth of an energy security source that's also compatible with worries about global warming. It's a um, it's it's a tough one because it it prom- it uh, elicits this kind of emotional, very emotional response. You know, even basically even just saying what you just said, a lot of people would sort of fly off the handle. Oh, climate change denier and all that sort of stuff. Even no, no, I'm not a denier. No, but I'm, that's I'm the not, thing. Not at all. That, that's but the I think thing, I think you need to look at the evidence of what's happened in Australia in this. You know, there's been a failure on both sides, a massive failure on both sides of politics. Yeah to ensure there's energy security plus some attention to the climate science. And you need to respond to that and work out a solution. So, you know, I think you're pretty foolish if you don't respond to new evidence in the political debate. Yeah. Um, but as, as I was saying, it, it's, a, it's a really emotional issue. And um, it, it's, it's interesting to note, like, as you say, it sort of reached this crescendo, sort of 2005, 2006, 2007. Um, Another issue that I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, um, which which has kind of evolved over the last sort of 20, 25 years, is gun control. Um, you famously had a, a spat with uh, Bob Catter on, was that on The Verdict, I think? Uh, yep. about About gun control. Um, you, joining the LDP now, the Liberal Democrat Party, they're quite... Um, you know, libertarian on the gun control issue. Uh, do do you still hold the same position on uh, on gun ownership? Well, my stoush with Bob Catter was mainly on the basis he was promoting a new form of gun importation into Australia, into which with which one of his relatives had a commercial interest. Mm. So I <laughs> I uh, didn't think that was a very ethical way to approach the the question. That clearly he was uh, promoting a, a policy that would. Uh, Improve the finances of family member. That was out in the open. Mm. Uh, my attitude on, on the guns issue is twofold. One is you do get a lot of left-wing sneering at legitimate recreational shooters as, as bogans and the like. I think that's deeply regrettable. I think the same support we give our sporting shooters at Olympic time when we're all cheering them on mm. to win medals, we, we should give give to them in, in the full four-year cycle to say recreational shooting Licensed law-abiding shooters are legitimate sports people and they deserve as much recognition and support from government all year round as any other sporting activity. So I think it's important to, to, to get that monkey off the back of uh, the, the, the sporting uh, shooting clubs because they've been harangued and they feel under siege from uh, these left-wing sneering mm-hmm. inner-city activists. So I think that's regrettable. But the second thing is... Um, on the. Hello? Another free and of of some lunatic with a high powered weapon in a public place, but fear of that happening, you know. I think if you said to your average parent in Australia, what are your what are your top five concerns about the future? You'd find in there somewhere a repeat in Australia of the horrific circumstances in the United States where you get massacres in schools and shopping centres. You know, the fact that in this country, um, since 1996, a public um, shooting massacre following the tragedy at Port Arthur, the fact that your average Australian parent can walk their kids to school of the day, thinking that, uh, or, you know, hoping and thinking that it's a relatively safe place, 
we haven't got any of this uh, uh, barbarism that you see in the United States. Well, I think that's a good thing. I think that is part of a freedom agenda. So my attitude is that um, uh, the Howard reforms in 1996 were designed to stop massacres, public massacres happening in Australia. They've been successful, again, based on evidence. Uh, why would you wind that back? And I think, you know, for the, 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 the shooting activists, uh, the shooting clubs and the like, they, they also need to have an awareness that in politics things can always get worse. Things can always get worse. And if there was someone, you know, obviously we're worried about Islamic terrorism. Yeah. Uh, someone with a, a gun who, who got hold, you know, got hold of a weapon and, and did their worst in a public place. There may well be um, public calls to make the ta- Howard laws even tighter. Yeah. Now, I think what we should do is settle on the Howard consensus from 1996 and say, well, that's worked, and we should just stick to that and no future changes to the gun laws. Uh, stop the sneering of legitimate shooters at the at the shooting clubs, but also lock in the 1996 uh, reforms so that in the future uh, there's no move to strengthen them or soften them. We just live with that. It's working in Australia. Why change it? Yeah, well, you you mentioned, uh, you know, sports shooting. But, you know, say, for example, in in Melbourne lately, there's been a a lot of uh, increase in in house-breaking, house-break-ins, sorry. Uh, Do you think that uh, gun ownership for self-defence reasons is a legitimate reason to own a gun? No, I think the legitimate response is to have an active police force that arrests the people who do the, the break-ins and, and deals with them harshly under the law. So I don't think there's any Australian tradition, mainstream Australian tradition, to feel that in a house you need a gun for self-defence reasons. Mm. We, we pay taxes for an effective police and judicial system that should deal with these gangs, if you're referring to the ethnic gangs in Melbourne, well, let's be honest about the situation and uh, the police should have every power to arrest people who break the law and and, and lock them up. So I I think for your average Australian, it's very much a a cultural thing, but uh, your average Australian suburban household, having a gun in the house uh, would be seen as, well, you know, does it cause problems? Kids getting hold of it, um, you know, parents having a bit of an argument, um, <laughs> you know, hot, 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 tempered moment where you know something bad happens using the the gun as a weapon. So you know, I, I don't think there's an Australian acceptance of the argument that you're putting. Um, things would have to get much, much worse in Australia in terms of uh, uh, gun-related home invasions to have any argument for. Uh, relaxing the gun laws to allow for the type of self-defence that you're talking about. Fair enough. Point taken. All right. I want to uh, change tack a little and a bit of a blast from the past, but I want to talk about your uh, political career. Um, You're elected in a by-election in 1994, and two years later, uh, the Keating government lost in, I I believe, Labor's second biggest uh, electoral defeat in history. Um, Just how difficult a time was it to enter politics then? Well, it was a heavy defeat. I think we were down to under 50 seats in the House of Representatives, so less than a third of the House. And there was a Labor Party debate about why this had happened. I'd, I'd sort of got uh, wind of the electoral mood at my by-election in '94, when there'd been a, a you know a reasonable swing against Labor, a swing above the by-election average. And uh, coming into the '96 election, 
I thought in southwestern Sydney, my seat was very similar to Lindsay based on Penrith in western Sydney. Now, Labor lost Lindsay at that election to Jackie Kelly. And, you know, I, I remember Gary Punch saying to me in the House after the Canberra by-election, which uh, Keating had lost, uh, I think, 25% swing or something, <laughs> you know, Punch said, uh, get out there doing the shoppers, shopping centres and door-knocking in Werriwa. I thought that was pretty good advice. And when I, you know, got back out, you know, I'd been through a by-election campaign, which was fairly intense, but I got back out doing the shopping centre stalls and community centre um, uh, clinics, as, as overseas people call them, where you sit down and invite your constituents to come in. The feeling was very much of, you know, we've been through a recession. Your average middle-class or working-class family still had issues about job security, financial um support and capacity and the Keating government was off on all these tangents uh, the Republic, Indigenous Welfare mm. Marbo, Arts Funding and the feeling was you know what about us? What about us here in the mainstream of middle Australia? And John Howard tapped into that with a, an agenda that was supposed to be about the mainstream. I think his slogan was all of us, you know, for mm. all of us yeah. meaning Keating had gone off on tangents. So I thought that was the reason we lost in, in, in 96, that uh, Labor hadn't addressed its traditional constituency, middle and working class families with, with their concerns about jobs and, and, um, and income growth. Mm. And, um, but inside the party, unfortunately, when Keating left, uh, he, he'd always said that his departure from the caucus would mean that all the economic central planners and the people who didn't believe in the open free market economic model that all crawled back out from under their rocks and want Labor to go back to being a party of economic regulation. And that was true. The false narrative after the 96 defeat was that we'd lost because we'd opened up the economy. Uh, that wasn't the reason at all. And uh, people like Wayne Swan and, and Stephen Smith wanted to go back to central economic planning. Simon Crean was racing around with so-called industry plans, which is really just industry welfare, mm. to make the companies less competitive. And that was the overwhelming mood. So unfortunately, after the 96 defeat, Beasley as the leader succumbed to the Smith-Swan-Cream pressure for retroeconomics. And years later, everyone says that. I said it at the time there in the, in the shadow cabinet. I was a minority of one yeah. in some of the votes. <laughs> and uh, it was a tragic error of judgment for Beasley to throw away the Hawke-Keating economic legacy, which to this day is still delivering. Mm. a record duration of growth and prosperity for Australia. It's slowed down a bit, but we're about to break the record of the Netherlands to have the longest period of continuous economic growth mm. in the history of the Western world. Well, Labor threw away that achievement electorally in 1996. Howard and Costello grabbed it with both hands, and we paid a heavy price for that for a long period. Yeah, you um, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a fair few lessons uh that had to be learnt after 1996, you know, the uh, party kind of uh, going against its sort of core beliefs. Now, one thing that was happening just before that loss was the amendment to the Racial Discrimination Act in 1995. At the time, as a young backbencher, did you have any strong views on that? Oh, well, yes. I, I say to people, I made the worst speech in Parliament of my career. <laughs> I gave an enthusiastic speech embracing 18C yeah. and I saw Gary Johns about this uh, just recently at the Liberty 
conference. He yeah. he reminded me. He reminded me. I had a vague memory of it. He reminded me that when 18C was put before the caucus, he Gary Johns, uh, Jim Snow, who was the caucus chairman, and Graham Campbell from Western Australia, mm. spoke against 18C, saying this was an unnecessary revision. It was a sign that uh, we'd stopped really governing for the majority of Australians. We'd caved in to um, ethnic lobby group demands that had been pushed through then Attorney General Michael Lavash. And the debate was such, I think they pushed it to a vote and, and they would have lost the vote, I don't know, 100 to 3 or something in the caucus. It was They were in a minority of three. Uh, but I, we were, as a caucus, um, somewhat misled by Michael Lavash. I was under the impression that 18C was going to, was there to deal with you know, some racist person grabbing hold of a megaphone in Martin Place, Sydney, and yelling mm. abuse at Asian or Aboriginal or or um, dark-skinned people, and and we needed it for that reason. And 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 since then, we've found out the various reports, the various human rights reports that were said to justify 18C. Lavash gave an inflated uh, or exaggerated interpretation of what they were recommending. Mm. I think Irene Moss and a few others have said that really 18C at that time went way too far. So it was a bit of a bit of a cluster fuck inside the um, <laughs> Labor caucus, quite frankly. Uh, Gary Johns was the hero of the day, and um, I ended up giving the worst speech ever in Parliament, which I very much regret. But I can plead there was a, an element of the caucus being misled uh, as to what was really going on. There hadn't been such a, a thorough process of which the caucus. They'd listened to Gary Johns, Jim Snow, and Graham Campbell, and said, "Let's have a let's have a, a month-long period where we can all review this, talk to the human rights uh, people, the ethnic lobby, listen to Gary Johns, and I'm sure if we'd done that, we wouldn't have proceeded with 18C." Yeah, yeah Gary Johns was a bit of an unsung hero in that period. Um, he was my local member then. Um, sadly, uh, the electorate didn't recognise his contributions on this debate, and. Sadly, he lost his seat, but he's gone on to other great things. Uh, so you did mention um, Kim Beasley uh, just before, and I'm glad you did because, you know, he's a figure from the past, but I see him as a significant figure during your career. Uh, I do note that you became Shadow Assistant Treasurer and later Shadow Education Minister under Kim Beasley. Um, I know that you later fell out with him, but at that early stage, what was your view of... Uh, Kim? Oh, it was about that issue of economic policy direction. That's where I fell out. I thought he'd made an historic error over mm. the Hawke-Keating economic model. And years later, I think I can say that my judgment was right. He'd probably admit that himself. I think he has as much publicly. So it was really about the direction of economic policy. Oh, so you, you could identify, even in that early stage when he first became leader, that this guy didn't have like a, a strong backbone on the economic reform issue? No, he was pushed around by others on that question, but he also had sort of a Western Australian view of... of, of, of a Western Australian Labor Party view that was very much about economic protectionism. Yeah, I think in his heart of heart he still supported tariffs. Uh, and he might have, you know, I'm, I'm sure his father had held that view in the 50s and 60s as a Labor parliamentarian. So it probably ran in the blood and it was an, an historic error. Yeah. Um, you, you're, something else you saw during the, uh, towards the start of your career was the rise of One Nation the first time round. Um, 
what was your what were your views on one nation then and has it changed now what's your view on them in their current form well i suppose the forerunner to one nation was the long well the now forgotten australians against further immigration party mm. afi they ran in my by election in 1994 and got i think near double digit primary vote mm. australians against further immigration I think Graham Campbell picked up most of those people when he formed his own party uh, years later. So that was a forerunner. I wasn't surprised by Hanson's emergence in the late 90s because I'd seen that sentiment in my own electorate. I didn't think, and I still don't think today, that there was any value in demonising Hanson supporters as bigots and racists. Mm. Um, there's a little bit of racism in Australia, but not, not a hell of a lot. And most Hanson supporters really are arguing about the fairness of society, they're against um, uh, big Australia immigration. Well, I'm against that too. Mm. Uh, they're wanting a stronger focus on national needs instead of um, thinking we've got uh, a massive set of international obligations we need to fulfil. And they're very much a protest party against the way in which the two major parties have got out of touch with the electorate. So there's a lot of good-hearted, well-intentioned Australians who support uh, the Hanson parties they did in the late 90s they do now and i think you've got to argue with them issue by issue or not argue so much but talk about politics issue by issue to 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 try and uh, deal with policy areas where they 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 might be heading down the wrong path but Mm. in a lot of areas particularly in wanting to cut the size of the immigration program they're 100 percent correct yeah um what do you think the the future of one nation is do you think that they're going to be here to stay or will will uh, uh, the other parties sort of move to uh, capture their uh, disaffected voters or w- what do you think is going to happen with One Nation? Well, I think there's two issues uh, and it's a repeat of what happened in the late 90s. There's a question of organisational cohesiveness. You know, there's been some yeah. items for One Nation uh, this week where yeah, it yeah. hasn't reflected very well on James Ashby, but it also... We also need to remember that you know they've got they've got people who go to these meetings with secret recordings yeah. that they then leak to the media. Well, you know, if you have secret recordings of what's being said inside the Liberal and Labor Party, it'd probably look even worse yeah. in terms of you know rorting the system. Yeah. So you really can't. Well, no party should be doing that, but they just seem to be um, incoherent as a party because the type of person who's getting involved. Yeah. is out there engaged in, in, in acts of sabotage and the whole organisational framework of One Nation looks very, very messy and unsustainable. The first time round, it fell apart with Oldfield and Ettridge and that yeah. gang and they seem to be having a repeat of, of similar problems. And the second position with One Nation is can they sustain a focus on the issues that matter? In the WA election campaign, Pauline Hanson, instead of talking about all the the culture war issues that, that would have attracted support in WA, you know, it's out there about Putin and vaccines. Well, yeah. I, I don't think uh, <laughs> you want to win the support of uh, mainstream Australian families. Arguing the case against vaccines <laughs> is as loopy as it gets. I'm sorry. I know there are people, anti-vaxxers out there, but again, you've got to look at the science and the evidence and it's impossible to sustain a position that argues against vaccinations in Australia, which which save young human lives. Yeah. Now, just on that, uh, your, your sort of early medium career. Uh, I mean, you you quit the front bench in '98, uh, and then you kind of rehabilitated yourself under Simon Crean um, to become leader by 2003. It seems like a pretty 
fast uh, turn of events. In hindsight, was it a bit too fast? Do you wish maybe uh, you'd rose a little bit slower, got mentored by a leader, um, served as a minister, and then uh, took on the leadership? Yeah, that would have been a better career path if you look at that way. Um, 2003, I was 42 years of age. I would have been better off waiting, raising a family, uh, getting a bit more life experience. Yeah, I think I was I was too early for it. I was the second youngest Labor leader in history after John Watson or Chris Watson, the first uh, Labor leader at Federation. So, yeah, um, too young, too early, and uh, didn't work out. Mm. Was it... Uh, do you think it, you know... Beasley and Crane, was it their inability to really lead the party that perhaps motivated you to go for it earlier than you were really ready? Well, in the circumstances, no matter what age you are, someone says you've got uh, the numbers or possibly the numbers inside the caucus to become the leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party and maybe Prime Minister, it's a fairly enticing uh, possibility if you're uh, committed to parliamentary politics as I was. So, you know, in the in the circumstances, um, most people would have grabbed it, but uh, uh, you know, events thereafter went okay for a while, but then turned to seed. That's just the that's just the ebb and flow, isn't it, of an active life in politics? Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, an active life in politics, you've seen uh, and and been affiliated with some pretty important figures in Australia's uh, history. Their prime ministerships: Paul Keating, John Howard. Uh, you're mentored by Gough Whitlam. Your career, you were um, parliamentary mates of uh, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott, Christopher Pine. Is is there a politician that in particular stands out to you as being absolutely top class? Well, Keating stands out, I think, for the reason that he had the passion and belief in an economic model that's produced amazing results for his country. So mm. there's a real nation-building function there. And... I didn't serve in the party with Hawke, but I think uh, history will treat Hawke very well as someone who oversaw the Keating reforms, won elections, was very popular, was in touch with the Australian electorate, the Australian psyche. And, um, you know, that combination, while they lasted, were, were very impressive indeed, Hawke and Keating. What about um, someone from the Liberal Party that stands out for you? Well, clearly their most successful politician of the generation was Howard. Mm. Um, Howard got lucky when Beasley handed over the <laughs> successful economic model and he cashed in on it. I mean, you know, a time when the economy was booming because of mining resource development in WA, you had big surplus budgeting, paying down debt. Uh, it was a, a golden period there and uh, Howard managed it well. You'd have to say he was by far their most impressive a political leader, certainly more impressive than the ones that have followed. <laughs> uh, we don't have too long to go. Um, you were mentored by Whitlam. Uh, in your diaries, you mentioned that when you were leaving politics, Whitlam was trying to uh, do the numbers or get, get you to endorse uh, his successor, or a successor in the seat that both you and Whitlam held. Um, and that was, you know, quite... Uh, that put a bit of a damp mark on your relationship with Whitlam. Uh, I want to know, uh, Whitlam has passed away since the publication of your diaries. Uh, did the two of you ever reconcile? No, no. I thought that uh, he'd gone down a different path and, um, you know, I, I left public life at that time to 
look after my kids. So that's what I wanted to do. I had a period there where I thought, oh, you know, I've done so much, God, it's been so intense. I was mayor, federal MP, front bencher, leader of the Labor Party, and I've got uh, um, two young sons there, ages uh, four and two. When I left politics, I want to give them 100% devo- devotion. And, you know, while they were growing up through those early school years, I didn't do a lot of politics on the basis. If you went and did lots of events and you spent all day with um, um, your old parliamentary colleagues or other people you knew in politics just gossiping on the phone, you know, eventually you'd be drawn back in and it wouldn't be very productive Mm. that way. You know, I I wrote some stuff about policy, but I never wanted to have a post-parliamentary life where you felt the need to, you know, catch up on the latest caucus gossip every second day. (laughs) So, yeah, I didn't have much to do with any of them actually on that basis and, you know, unless you see your friends on a daily basis or regular basis, face to face, you know, telephone political gossip uh, is, is not worth a cracker, in my assessment. So, yeah, I don't think I miss much there. <laughs> That's um, very interesting there. Um, now, recently, you've obviously announced that you're joining the Liberal Democrats Party, as we mentioned earlier. Um, the first former federal Labor Party leader since Billy Hughes, I think to join a different party. Um, well, he did it He did it as a serving MP. I haven't been an MP yeah, for, yeah, for 12 that... years. There's a bit of a difference there. Chris Watson actually uh, joined maybe the UAP or the Nationalist Party, uh, having yeah. left the parliament, yeah. So well, um... that, that, that's, a, that's a more accurate historical comparison. <laughs> I mean, it's a, big, it's a big thing to be a Labor MP in a, in a Labor seat one day and then mm. be a, uh, belong to a different party holding the same seat the next day. That's that's what Hughes and Joe Lyons did, but oh, yeah. uh, my circumstances are a long way removed from that. Well, what what were the circumstances? What, what's motivated you to to uh, get involved again, seeing as you've been out of politics for over a decade? What... Well, Labor's turned cactus. I mean, I've recorded there, written up the experience where I lost my freedom of speech inside the Labor Party. There was an event in Western Sydney where they struck mm. me off the speaker's list in a city lefty, yeah. Trotskyists and Stalinists <laughs> who weren't even going to the event said I couldn't speak. Well, geez, what are you got to do? I've lived in Western Sydney for over 50 years. I can't speak to Labor people at a place like Smithfield RSL. I just thought that was the absolute pits. Mm. And I couldn't in all good faith, all self-respect, uh, remain associated with a political grouping like that. Mm. But, you know, I'm happy to join the Liberal Democrats because I think they're a party of, of potential, a party of, of freedom. Mm. Smaller government, lower taxes, surplus budgeting, freedom of speech, pushing back against political correctness and social engineering. That's very much my Mm. um, policy approaches um, and things I believe in strongly. Essentially, you know, I think Australia is under attack from mutant leftist thinking that's run through our institutions. It's based on identity politics that we, we mentioned earlier on. It's wiping out meritocracy. It's wiping out judgment of people on individual merit. It's producing all sorts of um, inconsistent, inequitable outcomes across society. It's locking out your average mainstream Australian from participating in many of these uh, organisations. It's in the case of the Human Rights Commission. It's persecuting people like Bill Leake and those innocent university students uh, in Brisbane. So there's some horrendous trends. And... You know, I think our country's under attack and it's only when you see your country under attack that you understand, truly understand what patriotism is. So I think we've got to take back Australia, its values, its institutions from this mutant leftist thinking and that's got me reanimated in politics to play a role. 
uh, you know, hopefully uh, through the Liberal Democrats, hopefully that's productive. Well, that was so that's be... why I'm, I'm, I've set up my, my platform, Mark Latham's Outsiders, on social media. People should go to the website, marklathamsoutsiders.com. Go to the support page if you can. And, um, yeah, I want to be active on that, that basis. You know, for a period after politics, I mentioned earlier on the media, I was writing about politics, my Fin Review column. You know, I was giving my best views, but I wasn't energised and animated by what was happening. But the attack on our institutions, our values, the Australian way, the loss of meritocracy, the introduction of segregation by, by identity politics has got me reinterested and recommitted to talking and, and being more active in, in, in politics and, and also the Trump phenomenon in the United States. Oh, that was amazing. I got much more passionate about politics watching Trump's success than I'd been for many, many years. Mm. Yeah, uh, we were actually just looking uh, over YouTube just before you came on, just trying to find a good uh, clip of you. And there was actually one uh, in Parliament where Tony Abbott, uh, then manager of opposition, of leader of the House, sorry, uh, was saying, you know, Mark Latham, like the leader of the opposition, is the Donald Trump of Australian politics. <laughs> he meant that as an insult, but yeah. I honestly think uh, <laughs> that those words are quite telling. Uh, that <laughs> that says a lot. <laughs> Yeah, that twisted around a different way. And you look at it differently <laughs> today, don't you? So I don't think Abbott would think that was his, his greatest ever uh, cutting remark. <laughs> um, speaking about the uh, uh, the LDP um, and you being reanimated and all, all the rest, I'm just trying to work out what is your sort of uh, plan with re-entering politics? Are, are we likely to be able to vote for Mark Latham on the ballot sometime? Yeah, possibly. I wouldn't rule that out, but realistically, uh, the federal and also state election here in New South Wales are, are years away, so um, we'll just have to wait and see. Just have to wait and see. Mm. Well, finally, uh, finally, Mark, um, to a slightly lighter note, but um, uh, I note that you're an avid uh, St George Dragons fan. And, yeah, uh, my word. They were doing uh, brilliantly earlier this year. They've dropped off a little. Um what do you think their chances are of winning the premiership this season? Well, I don't think we're going to win the comp, but I think we're very strong contenders to, to, to play a good role in September, play finals footy, which has been a bit rare for the Dragons since the premiership win in 2010. Mm. So, yeah, they've had a good, strong start to the season. I mean, when you say they dropped off, they, they lost in golden point to the Roosters after Widdop was injured, had to go off. So exactly. that was a very yeah. unlucky defeat. They got towed up by the storm, but they're not the only ones where that's happened. And they were robbed blind by the referee against the Sharks and then fantastic performance last uh, week against uh, the Warriors. They've got the bye this week, so and then they should beat the Tigers next week. So they're going really well. But if they can get Gareth Witter back, who's in career-best form, then you know I think they're good contenders maybe for finishing in the top five or six of the Premiership this year, which... Is a big turnaround. At the start of the season in the betting markets, the Dragons were second favourites for the wooden spoon yeah. behind the Knights. So, you know, full credit to the club there. They've answered a lot of critics and hopefully they'll continue to do that. What, what do you make of um, Josh Dugan going uh, to the Shire? <laughs> oh, that's all right. I think he's getting, you know, he's a big unit, Dugan. I don't think he's a natural fullback anymore. I think he's a bit slow for the centres. He'll end up in the forwards. I tell you, yeah. by the end of his four-year contract with the Sharks, he'll be playing second row. So I think that's the reason the Dragons didn't offer so the you're, same you're sort of money, and they're they're not they're not you know they're not too unhappy that he's moving on. I mean the Dragons had to make a bit of salary cap room because they brought in Ben Hunt for next season. So yeah, that's true. Uh, they've also lost Russell Packer, which I think is a bigger loss 
than yeah, Dugan. I agree, yeah. So you're happy to be on the record saying Josh Dugan will be a second row by uh, 2021? Yeah, no doubt about it. When he finishes <laughs> the Sharks, he'll be in the forwards. I mean, he's, 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 he's huge. He's lost a bit of pace. He's getting bigger. <laughs> I think there's a natural progression there into the into the pack, you know, or like on the scale of a Chris Lawrence or someone like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's fantastic, Mark. And as I said, we'll have to wait and see on the Dragons' hopes and we'll have to wait and see uh, on whether there's a Mark Latham comeback. We at Counter Counter Culture, we're certainly... We're hoping for a Mark Latham comeback. Uh, mm. I'm a Broncos fan. Sam's a Cowboys fan. So we're, we're less hopeful about it. Dragons comeback. Mm. Uh, but thanks Mark. heaps for being on the show, Mark. No, pleasure. Thanks, guys. Good luck with your footy teams. I'm a bit keener on the Cowboys and the Broncos. They towed us up in two grand finals in the 90s. Right. So <laughs> you never forget who beat you in a grand final. And, and Wayne Bennett, he was at the Dragons. He's That's up there right. now. But, um, yeah, they're going all right, the Bronx, I suppose. But uh, keener on the Cowboys. Good yeah. luck, fellas. Thanks, Thanks for very... having me on, and um, I hope your show is a big success. Cheers, Mark. We'll be in touch later on. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Take See it ya. easy. Have a good one. All right. Well, there you go. Um, that was our interview with Mark Latham. <laughs> and I, I think it went, went great. What did you think of it, Sam? Yeah. I think, um, I think it was good. We, we um, I guess this is uh, kind of strange because usually our guest stays with us till the very end. Um, yeah, Mark's a busy man. Um, he gave us 40, he 45 minutes, which is good. He offered us 30 minutes and he stayed a bit longer, so he's a very generous man. Yeah, I, um, I was tossing up towards the end uh, after you finished the questions whether to just say, well, we're at the end of our questions, Mark. Uh, is there anything you want to talk about? But um, I think you know, we, it was um, nice and succinct and um, it, it kind of forced us to be a bit more um, uh, snappy with the, the timing, I think. People who have been listening to our episodes know that we can, uh, you know, get a bit off off track, and we can prattle on about this and that, and uh, and, and that's fine. But um, you know, yeah, we got through twenty questions in about forty three minutes. So yeah, I think I cut oh, cu- cut a couple, seven, yeah, uh, seventeen or so. But yeah, uh, well, thanks for tuning in. Um, mm. I believe. Uh, we might be taking a break. We, we've been mm. a bit on and off this season, so we might be taking a break. Yeah. Uh, now I think that was a pretty good, good conclusion uh, for the season. To the season. What do you think of that, Sam? Yeah, I, I think it's a um, it, it's a good good note to finish on. Um, I, I'd like to be to be back a bit later this year. Um, just yeah, things are quite busy at the moment. Um, I'm also going to be away in a couple of weeks' time for three or four weeks. So I mean. It's a bit all over the place, and and with with my leg and everything. Um, Hopefully, the state election in Queensland, but that yeah, potentially might come up might late in the year. That might be might even be early early next year. We're not sure. Oh well, uh, that might be a good thing to mm. cover into the future. I mean, we've just seen the Dutch and the French election mm. this season, so some great things. Uh, we've had the privilege of covering. I mean, we had the Trump election last mm. year and the Australian election. Brexit. So, mm. uh, We'll have to see what's on the horizon. But, mm. uh, German but German election and Queensland state election. I think you know. I think the German elections in September or something. So that's you know four, three four months away. Um, but but yeah, don't worry. We we will be back. Um, you know we can you can only do uh, uh, so much in a season. So we're gonna have a few weeks off and we'll come back later on. Thanks, uh, thanks Sam, and thanks to all our listeners and and our guests. Not as many this season, but. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, it's quite hard when some of our episodes <laughs> were, uh, were recorded on Skype. 600 kilometre gap, uh, that, that does make it a bit tough. Well, I mean, we had Ilya he, last season. He's yeah. further away. I suppose we I guess I was in the same room. A then. three-way Skype, but we could have. I don't know how that works. I'm not too tech savvy, but <laughs> yeah. uh, that quite was clearly. our first phone. <laughs> what do you mean, quite clearly? In terms of, um, well, if if you... Don't know how Skype works, then I think it's a it's an understatement to say you're not tech savvy. I'm in the same boat. I yeah. I, I don't know if you can do a three way, you know, uh, Skype thing, but I'm sure that uh, <laughs> you know Skype's not that complicated. But I still have trouble with it. <laughs> yeah, well, Mark, uh, that was our first uh, phone interview mm. ever, and I, I think that went well. We were absolutely terrified how it would go doing a phone interview here uh, mm. with not that great reception in the suburb uh, of Newmarket. Yeah, I will apologise. There was um, there was a little minute or so where it sort of dropped in and out and I think it was when he was talking about guns. Um, so I'm not sure if that will come through on the recording, but um, I think overall um, quite good and hopefully, um, you know, he can give it a share or whatever and, uh, you know, well, yeah, now, now we're just predicting the future. But <laughs> anyway, I, I think we can w- we, we can do. keep chatting about this offline. But uh, thanks no, to everyone for they, tuning in. They have to listen. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Cheers. Bye. You all laughed at me. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? You're not saying anything, Tony. I've given you the response you deserve.